Well, praise the Lord for you being here tonight. We're looking forward to the time and opportunity we'll have to be able to teach the Word of God, the prophetic Word of God, as Pastor has introduced, and hope you brought your Bible with you. Take your Bibles and let's go to the book of Acts. I introduced the book of Acts last evening as the action book. It's not a book of doctrine. There are some doctrines that are introduced, but it's basically a book of action. It's a transitional book between the offer of the kingdom, which is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and in particular the book of Matthew, and then the period of the church age. From the day of Pentecost and the establishment, the foundation, the gift from God of the church age, a mystery, according to the book of of, uh, Ephesians, a mystery that was put in place between the 69th and 70th week of the book of Daniel and the uh, 70 weeks of Daniel, Daniel 9, 24 to 27, which will be my subject on Sunday morning, which will give us evidence of the nearness and the greatest evidence, the greatest sign for the rapture of the church. I hope you can be here with us Sunday morning. Sunday school hour, we'll look at the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and 3, and the last word to the church. Many people believe that First uh, and Second Timothy and Titus would be considered the pastoral epistles, and I believe that as well. Pastor and myself, when we were studying to go into ministry, studied First and Second Timothy and Titus because those are the directors, directives uh, breathed into the Apostle Paul by the Holy Spirit to be able to operate a church. But truly, the last words to the church are not found in First and Second Timothy and Titus. They're found in the book of Revelation in the letters that the Lord Jesus gave to John the Revelator to deliver to those seven churches in Asia Minor. And we'll be doing that, a look at those letters, at least as much as we can in the period of time allotted to us in the Sunday school hour. I need much more than that, but I'll at least introduce to you those letters. And I would suggest that even before we come to Sunday morning in the Sunday school hour, you might want to read through second and third chapter of the book of Revelation. They are packed full of wonderful information and directives from the Lord as to how we should be living in this time in which we find ourselves living. It's a personal, personal study, but in addition to that, it's to the church as well. Tomorrow night, we're going to be looking at Ishmael's Islamic invasion, and I'm going to be talking about three things, and I just gave you it in the title, Ishmael, Islam, and the invasion. We need to understand where we are in God's time because we then will understand how close we are to the time of the rapture of the church. Once we understand what's going on in this world, it comes to a capability of recognizing where we are. And so I would suggest that you do everything you possibly can to be with us here Tomorrow night, bring your Bibles along, and we're going to study Ishmael's Islamic invasion. The reason for Ishmael. So many people think mistakenly that Ishmael fathered the Arab world. I'll tell you right now, he did not father the Arab world, and I will prove that from the Scripture. What he did was father the Islamic world. His culture of life was the precursor to the Islamic 
world coming into position under Muhammad and Allah. And Islam is the major player in our world today. If you're going to go to the mission field, you had better recognize. It used to be said that if you went to Saudi Arabia, Islam was the major player. And then they said, if you go to the Middle East, Islam is the major player. Now, which if you go to any place in the world, Islam is a major player, both in the European Union and the United States and across the known world. And so I think it'll be a key message at a missions slash prophecy conference. And I hope you'll come and study with us at that particular time tomorrow evening where I look at Ishmael's Islamic invasion. I'm going to the 19th chapter of the book of Acts because I want to tell you about my quiet time this morning. This is the portion of scripture I read for my quiet time. Now, I'm not trying to brag In fact, if you have a quiet time and you tell somebody about it, it's not bragging because every single person in the room should be having a quiet time, reading a portion of scripture every single day. Before I get out of bed every morning, I read a portion of scripture to direct me throughout that day. And when I open my Bible to read my passage for this morning and my devotions, and by the way, my devotions are devotions that I wrote several years ago, I wanted to do a personal project for myself. I wanted to see if I could set up a devotional that would look at all the prophetic passages of God's Word. I came to the understanding that Bible prophecy is in all 66 books of the Bible. Every single book of the Bible has Bible prophecy in it. So I went from Genesis to Revelation, and I would select the prophetic passages, and then that passage I would use in a daily devotional. By the way, we have those available on our website. If you would like to go to the website, you would like to have maybe an additional devotional that you could select from on a daily basis with a prophetic perspective, go to my website, prophecytoday.com. Look up there on the right-hand column. You'll see daily devotional, and you can go to that and read it. Or if you have an email, we'd be thrilled to send you my devotion on an email. We have about 20, 25,000 people to receive our devotional on a daily basis. And uh, if you'll give Judy your email address, we'll put you on that list so you can receive it. Whether you do my devotional or not, you need to do a devotional. Every single person needs to have a time in the Word of God on a daily basis. So when I opened my Bible this morning to have my devotional, I was in chapter 19. I have been amazed. I wrote these at least five years ago. And when I am out preaching someplace, there's a connection between my devotional and the theme of what I'm going to be speaking on that night. And it was so exciting for me to open up and say, wow, look what has happened. You remember the 19th chapter of the book of Acts? The apostle Paul was on one of his missionary journeys. He had already gone into Thessaloniki. He had gone into Berea. He had gone into Macedonia. He had already been traveling in the mission field. He's now going to go into Ephesus. I don't know if you know anything about Ephesus. It's located on the southwestern corner 
of the state of modern-day Turkey. At that time, it was known as Asia Minor. Today, it's the town of Kusadasi, and that's where Ephesus, or at least the archaeological remains. By the way, if you're interested in something like that, archaeological remains are rare to be as preserved as they are in Ephesus. They may well have the greatest preserved archaeological site in any place in the world. And if you're interested, uh, also see Judy. We're going to take a cruise into Ephesus. We're going to Athens. We're going to Ephesus. We're going to Rome this fall. And I, I don't mean to be giving promotion right now, but I don't want to tell you about a place and not give you an opportunity to come go with us and study with us there. Ephesus at the time Paul arrives, and it's about 50 A.D., somewhere in that period of time, 50 to 55 A.D., Paul comes into Ephesus. Ephesus was the second most influential city in the Roman Empire, second only to the city of Rome. It had the largest library of any place in the world. It was brought out of Alexandria, Egypt, there. And when you go into the ruins of Ephesus, you can almost see the books on the shelves and the preservation of the library there in Ephesus. It's a very unbelievable site, but it was an unbelievable city as well. When Paul got there, he recognized and knew what was going on. It was the headquarters for the worship of Diana. They had a big statue of the goddess Diana there. And it's the location where they say traditionally uh, that John would have died and his mother would have died there as well. I'm not sure that is the case. I do know that John became the pastor of the church at Ephesus about 40 or 45 years after Paul established the church. But Paul comes into town and he notices that everybody is worshiping Diana, that the silversmiths are making the trinkets to honor and worship Diana. He realized what the possibility of trouble might be. And so what he did, he went into the synagogue. You know, that was a custom of the Apostle Paul traveling around the world in Asia and also in Europe. And he would go into a synagogue. Synagogues were not anything at all. They weren't even in existence until the Babylonian captivity. When the children of Israel, the book of Daniel and the book of Ezekiel, were taken into the Babylonian captivity, they could not take their worship center, the temple, with them, so they established a synagogue system. It was in walking distance because the Orthodox Jew can only walk a day's journey a Sabbath day's journey, which is about 3,000 feet in every direction. So the synagogue had to be very close to the neighborhoods. It was kind of like a neighborhood church or a neighborhood synagogue where they went. When they came back out of the captivity, they brought the custom of the synagogue. Jesus was used the synagogue. He was in Capernaum. He cast out the demons of the demonically controlled man there in the synagogue in Capernaum. Uh, but when Apostle Paul started his outreach ministry, he would go into a city, go into a synagogue, and start to reason with the Jews. Look what it says, starting in verse 8. And he went into the synagogue, and he spake boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the, th the things concerning the kingdom of God. Now just notice something. The kingdom of God was no longer being promised. We related to that last evening 
the postponement of the kingdom had come into place when Jesus Christ said he had to go to the cross, be crucified, buried, and resurrected. But he gave a promise in Matthew 24, verses 30 and 31, that he was going to come back. He was going to establish the kingdom. In Acts chapter 1, when asked if he was going to do it after the 40 days after his resurrection, he said, no, I'm not, and I don't know when I am. Only my father knows that. And the father will give Jesus Christ the kingdom when he comes back to the earth at the second coming. And so Paul is not offering the kingdom here, but he was starting at a neutral place in the thinking of the Jewish people. They anticipated, since the kingdom is only promised to Jewish people and never promised to Christians, then the place to start with a Jew is talking about the kingdom. Remember, that's exactly what Jesus did. He taught for 40 days after his resurrection things pertaining to the kingdom, Acts chapter 1. The apostle Paul, following that example, as he starts in his missionary endeavors, and he starts to teach and preach about the kingdom. Verse 9, but when divers were hardened, and they believed not, but they spake evil, that way of the way of Christianity before the multitude, so thus he departed from the and separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus. Tyrannus had a school there in Ephesus, so he moves in. Now notice, in verse 10, and this continued in the school. And I've stood at the exact spot there in Ephesus where the school was set up and operating during the ministry of the Apostle Paul here in the 19th chapter of Acts. And this continued by the space of two years. Now notice this next part. So that they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus and both Jews and Greeks heard it. Do you understand? That's talking about what we know as modern-day Turkey. In biblical times, Asia Minor would have been the geographical location of modern-day Turkey. Every single person over a two-year period of time, because of the teaching and the preaching of the Apostle Paul, every person in Asia Minor heard the gospel message. I don't know that they came to know Jesus Christ. The text doesn't say that. But they did hear the gospel message. Every person. I would venture to say this church probably hasn't contacted everybody in Nassau with the gospel. In the last two years, have you done that? Hmm. Well, this is how missions works. And this was the heart of the Apostle Paul, to get the word of God out. Do you understand what that means? I told you on Sunday morning, I'm going to be speaking from Revelation 2 and 3. You know what? That includes letters to seven churches of Asia Minor. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. Oh, and if you wanted to put in Colossae, they're not a part of those seven churches, but between Philadelphia and Laodicea, you go up on the mountaintop there, that's where Colossae is. Eight churches were established because of one church and one man preaching the gospel in a two-year period of time and training his people to move out to spread the gospel around the world. That's missions. Now, they went out. Not everybody got saved. I misspoke a moment ago. But everybody heard the gospel. Look down here in verse 20. So mightily 
grew the word of God and prevailed. They were going out. I think this gives us some information as to how the missions ought to be operating. If you're going to be a part of the selecting of the missionaries this church should be supporting, it better be people who are preaching and teaching the gospel message. We can dress them up. We can feed them all day. That's not good. What are we going to do? Send fat people that are full and dress nicely to hell? So we don't get involved in a social gospel. We get involved in the gospel that changes lives. And when those lives are changed, they'll learn how to eat or make their money to eat. And they'll learn how to dress properly. And so that's what Paul's doing, preaching and teaching the word of God. If you've read the whole 19th chapter of the book of Acts, you understand he got himself in trouble. I mean, the whole town came together. They were getting ready to kill him because he was preaching the gospel. He could have preached against worship of idols like Diana. He didn't do that. He preached the gospel. And the Lord God's word grew mightily. And it set up a preparation, a foundation for eight churches to be established there in Asia Minor. You see, that's the process of mission, going to a place and building churches who will then continue to multiply and send missionaries out of those locations. Pastor said, I started a church in Jerusalem. We did that. We'd been there for about four months, and uh, we decided we were going to establish a church. And so we went over to this uh, Bible study uh, where they were getting together, somebody had suggested I get a hold of some of the people over there. So we went over there, and it was a Duke's mix- mixture of charismatics, of non-saved people, of Christians. I mean, everything and every shade of whatever you could suggest was in the Bible study. They asked me to teach, and I said, no, I'm not going to teach. I didn't want to be like the Apostle Paul and be run out of Jerusalem, so I decided not to teach. I was going to let them come to a conclusion where they found out they were wrong. But I took two other men, three of us got together, and I talked about the local church, and we ultimately started a local church. We started with six people, six people, my wife and then Menno Kalashir's wife, who was my translator and ultimately became the pastor, and another man, uh, David Schmidt and his wife. And we started teaching that people need to come to a local church. Uh, This is a local church. Look at the crowd here tonight. This is a great crowd for, what is tonight? Thursday night. I mean, this is a terrific crowd. And that's what we started doing. And we started leading people to the Lord. And now we were a Baptist church. The Lord will forgive us of that. But that's what we decided to be, Baptist. And so we started a Baptist church. And you know, a Baptist church has to have a baptistry. Is that your baptistry? But you're a Bible church. You're not a Baptist. We didn't have a baptistry. That one's not bad. You know where we baptized when we led somebody to the Lord? The Jordan River. It's good enough for Jesus. It was good enough for us. How about that? See? And so we started Baptist. We ultimately got us a church building because we never had. We were. Have you ever heard of the Wandering Jew? That was us moving from place to place trying to have an operation to set up this church. But we were winning people to Christ. We didn't need a building. 
All the guys kept saying, don't you think we ought to build a building? I said, no, we ought not to build a building. Let's get people saved. What's the use of having a building if we don't have any people in it? And so we got a lot of people saved. And then we were going to get a building. And you know what we got to establish that church, a building? It was on the fifth floor of an industrial building. And all it was was concrete block in the room. That's all there was. And you know how much we had to pay for that fifth floor with one elevator that would take our people up there? Two million dollars. Location, location, location. That's the rule of real estate. But God provided. And now we have started to reach out to people and we're winning people to Christ. It's amazing. The ministry that God has opened up for us there. Uh, But I'm telling you, that's what we were doing, following the dictates of Paul, preaching and teaching the word so it grew mightily. And thus then we could then establish a church and start to train up people and do the same thing. Now, I told you all that to say the first thing we did is select missionaries that we would support. Before we had more than 25 people, we had enough for missionaries that we were supporting. I have to honor this church for having a missions conference. The 44th, as I understand, well, wait a minute. I hope your missions budget has been growing every year. If it hasn't been growing, you're dying. And so you had better get right and start. Hey, I love the faith promise idea, Pastor. Was that yours? Oh, no, no, that's a biblical idea, isn't it? Oh, thank you very much. What are you doing, teaching the Bible here? That's ridiculous. At a Bible church, you're teaching a Bible. Anyway, (laughs) you understand what I'm saying? Uh, Sometimes I kind of get under your skin, don't I? I understand it. I'm a prophet. You you think I'm here to say, give you a little sermonette for Christianettes? No, I'm here to teach what the Word said. And I want to show you what the Word said. This is Paul. Now, this is out of my quiet time this morning. Man, I was so excited I couldn't hardly stand it. Let me take you to another place. Go to Romans. And the pastor told me he's been teaching through Romans. And uh, I, I was excited about that because that's one of the great books of the entire Word of God, the book of Romans. We did a series, Marty Hahn and I, on Day of Discovery on Romans. And actually, we went over to a location in Jordan, which is one of the Decapolis cities. And over there at Jeresh, they have put together a replica of how the Roman Empire was. That was one of the 10 cities, the Decapolis cities, the Gentile cities. And they have selected men the exact same size of the Roman soldiers. And they had the Roman soldiers come out in absolute detailed uniforms of the Roman Empire. And they had the chariot races and they had all of the uh, gladiators out there. And Martin and I would stand right in the middle of them and teach the book of Romans. But Romans is a fantastic. I, again, honor the pastor for selecting that as the beginning of his study of God's word, Romans. When you come to chapters 9, 10, and 11, guess who it's focused on? The Jewish people, Israel. Chapter 9, Israel past. Chapter 10, Israel present. Chapter 11, Israel future. So Paul had a heart for his own people. And he wanted to talk about Israel. Now I want to show you what he said in chapter 9. Look here at verse 13. And I want to tell you, he was studying the old ancient prophets' messages. I'll prove that. Look what he says here. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Now when he's talking about 
Israel past, he's bringing up the twin brother of Jacob. And he makes the statement, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. If you first hear that and you think a moment, you might say, wait a minute, is there unrighteousness with God? Well, Paul you know, anticipated that would be the case. Look at the next verse. Verse 14, what should we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid no unrighteousness. Now go back up to verse 10. This will help explain why he made the statement. It's a quote from the book of Malachi. We'll go there next. Look at verse 10. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children not being yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand not of works, but of him that calleth. By the way, that's describing sovereign selection. You see, he's going to select the younger over the elder. This wasn't the custom. This wasn't the tradition. The older son born would receive the blessing and the birthright. But through sovereign selection, God is going to change. By the way, it happened with his brother Isaac. Tomorrow night we'll be talking about Ishmael. Ishmael wasn't the son of promise, howbeit he was the firstborn to Abraham. Isaac was the son of promise. We'll get more into that tomorrow night. Same principle is being applied to Isaac and his son Jacob and Esau. So before they were even born, the Lord in the womb of Rebekah selected the elder to serve the younger. Then it says, as it is written, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. Now I want you to know something, and I'm giving you this bit of information because I want you to understand the apostle Paul had studied the prophets. This is a prophecy slash missions conference. And so here's a missionary who's out there studying the Word of God. Don't you remember what he said to Timothy? Hey, Timothy, when you come, please bring my books. I want to study more. Here's a guy who wrote the major books of the New Testament. I've heard scholars say that probably Paul was one of the five most intelligent men that's ever lived on the face of the earth. This guy was brilliant. He didn't quit studying. He said, bring my books i got to study some more. So I'm sure he was studying the book of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, the last of the prophets in the Old Testament. Go back to the book of Malachi with me. It's the last book in the Old Testament. That should be easy for you to find. And go to chapter 1, because he quoted in Romans chapter 9 and verse 13 a passage from Malachi. Now look over here in Malachi chapter 1. Verse 1, the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, saith the Lord, yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I loved Jacob and I hated Esau. See, there's the quote in the book of Romans chapter 9 and verse 13. And I laid, look what he did to Esau. And I laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness, whereas Edom, and by the way, that was the name that God gave Esau, 36th chapter of the book of Genesis, 32nd chapter of the book of Genesis, he gives his twin brother Jacob the name of Israel. He changed both of their names, which is key 
to understanding the rest of the word of God. Now notice what he said. I laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness, whereas Edom saith, we are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Oh, that's what the Lord hears. And now notice what the Lord says. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, oh, they shall build, but I will throw down, and they shall call them the border of wickedness, and the people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever. And so what we're looking at here, we're looking at twin brothers, Jacob and Esau. Now there's some way a connection to the fact that he loved Jacob and hated Esau. And then there's the statement that he laid waste the location, the place of residency for Esau. Do you know where it was? In Edom. Ammon, Moab, and Edom, that's a modern-day Jordan. Ammon in the north, Moab in the middle, Edom in the south. It had another name, and I'll show you that one in just a moment. But you know where Edom is? The lower third of modern-day Jordan. You know what's in Edom? A location called Petra. And that's where old Esau, with his family, went to live. And he was impoverished there. The Nebataeans almost killed all of the Edomites there in Petra. Then the Romans came in. They finished off the job. He said, you're impoverished. And what did they say? Yeah, but we're going to return and we're going to rebuild. What did the Lord say? Yeah, okay, you rebuild and I'll call your border the border of wickedness. And I'll have indignation against you forever. He's pretty strong on that. There needs to be a reason and understanding from a biblical perspective why he was so strong against the Edomites. May I tell you this? There's more judgment pronounced against the Edomites in God's word than any other people group in all of history. More judgment upon them. Go back over to the book of Ezekiel chapter 35. Ezekiel chapter 35, and that was supposed to be your pre-reading for the study tonight. And I'm not going to ask how many read the book of Ezekiel chapter 35. I'm going to let you get by. Tomorrow night I will ask you if you read the pre-reading. But look at chapter 35 of the book of Ezekiel. This is a very interesting chapter because Ezekiel chapter 33 to 48 is basically a message of restoration. Ezekiel chapters 1 to 32 is a message of retribution. Retribution is judgment. And then restoration, restoring the kingdom people who are the Jewish people, and only the Jewish people, may I say, and restoring the kingdom practices which are for the Jewish people, not for Christians. And so that's the last 16 chapters of the book of Ezekiel. But right in the midst of all of that, he has another message of, rest, of retribution, of judgment. Look what he says here. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, set thy face against Mount Seir, and prophesy against it, and say unto it, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, O Mount Seir, I am against thee, and I will stretch out my hand against thee, and I will make thee most desolate. Look here in, in, in verse 5. Uh, verse uh, 5, and here's why he's going to do it. Because thou hast had a perpetual hatred and hast shed the blood of the children of Israel. Oh, look up here in verse 10. Here's the second reason he's going to bring judgment on these people of Mount Seir. Because thou hast said, 
These two nations and these two countries shall be mine, and we will possess it, whereas the Lord was there. Therefore, as I live, saith the Lord God, I will even do according to thy anger and according to thy envy, which thou hast used out of thy hatred against them. In other words, uh, these people of Mount Seir hated the Jewish people, so they started killing them, and now they're going to take their land. Kill and steal. That was the theme of these people of Mount Seir. Now notice what he says, and I will make myself known among them when I have judged thee, and thou shalt know that I am the Lord and that I have heard all of thy blasphemies. You kill the Jews, you steal from the Jews. That's blasphemy against God Almighty. They're his people, his chosen people. Special plan for the Jewish people. Different than for Christians. He said, because you've done this, I'm going to make myself known unto you and I'm going to show you the blasphemy that you've spoken and been involved in your actions, blasphemous. Mount Seir. You know, if there's so much judgment pronounced against Mount Seir, we better find out who Mount Seir is. I'm going to give you the information, but go with me first to the 25th chapter of the book of Genesis. We'll find out who Mount Seir is, but you got to start with the beginning, the birth of these two boys, Jacob and Esau. In the 25th chapter of the book of Genesis, we have a wonderful record of the families of Abraham. Three different families are spoken about. The two that are major, and I'll look at the other one tomorrow night, would be Ishmael and then Isaac. Look here in verse 19. Now these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begot Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah to be his wife. And she was from in Syria. And that's, he went over there and got her and brought her down and they got married. Verse 21, and Isaac entreated the Lord for his wife because she was barren. In other words, she could not have children. And so Isaac is going to start praying to the Lord. And he's going to say to the Lord, I, I, we would love to have children. And uh, he, 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 he just prayed. And guess what? Rebecca, his wife, conceived. But I want you to notice something. You better watch out how you pray. You better be specific. Isaac wanted a son to carry on the heritage of the Jewish people, which Abraham established. But wait a minute. He must have prayed too long and too hard because he got two sons. I said, be specific when you're praying, all right? Now, look what happens here in verse 22. And the children, Jacob and Esau, in the womb of their mother, and the children struggled together within her. And she said, if it be so, why am I thus? And she went to the Lord. Lord, why are these two sons of mine? She didn't know really there were sons or not. They didn't do those type of things back then. But there's two children inside of her womb. She said, why are they struggling? Now, I want you to notice what the Lord says to her. Verse 23 is key. Look at what verse 23 says. And the Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. Now notice this. And the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. Sovereign selection. When God chose the elder to serve the younger. That wasn't tradition. That wasn't the custom. And so when they came from their mother's womb, who was going to be the firstborn? Well, the firstborn was Jacob. And, but he wasn't the firstborn by anything less than a body leak because old Esau had his hand on his heel. But Jacob was still the firstborn. And then they come out. And since he was the firstborn, he 
was going to have to get the opportunity of receiving all the blessing. Now, I want you to understand, I said Jacob was the firstborn, Esau was the firstborn. Jacob had his hand on his heel. And when they came out, Esau, the firstborn, to receive the blessing, receive uh, the inheritance, receive uh, the uh, everything, the birthright. And when he comes out, he... He is going to be the firstborn, but Jacob has his hand on his heel and he comes out. He's the secondborn, but the Lord had already told his mother, Rebecca, what was going to happen. Do you know how the narrative unfolds? And let me just quickly go through it because you probably understand the narrative better than I because you knew Esau was the firstborn. I saw some of you saying, oh, man, what's wrong with this guy? Doesn't he know who's the firstborn? Well, I got it right. And then you started smiling and said, yeah, yeah, that's right. Finally, the young, you got it right. Look, I'm an old man. I was having one of those senior moments. They're coming more often. So just relax. Some of you will get there someday. The rest of you know exactly what I'm talking about, okay? Now just relax. And so here is Jacob. Now he is the second born, but he's going to get the blessing. He's going to get the birthright. Oh, Esau, he was a ready character. Hairy, hair all over his body. He was a great worker. And so we went out to Isaac's fields, and he was working. And one day, little pansy Jacob went in and got a lunch from his mother and went out to the field and got under a big tree out there, sitting in the shade, drinking a Pepsi and having his lunch. And old Esau looked and said, hey, Jacob, give me some of that lunch. And Jacob said, no way, boy. Mama made this lunch for me. If you want some lunch, you go get Mama to make you a lunch. And finally, they kept bickering back and forth. And finally, Jacob says, have I got a deal for you? That follows down through Jewish history, by the way. Have I got a deal for you? And he said, well, what's the deal? He said, I'll tell you what. If uh, you give me your birthright, I'll give you all of this lunch. Esau said, you got a deal. And he gave up his birthright. Now we come to the end of the life of Isaac, the father. Isaac's almost blind. He calls in Esau. He said, Esau, you know how I love venison stew. I want you to go out there and I want you to kill a deer. I want you to dress the deer and make me some venison stew. Bring the venison stew in. We'll have a meal and I'll give you the blessing. Esau, okay, father, I'll be out there. I'll come back as soon as I possibly can. He goes out. Meanwhile, Rebecca hears what the plan is. She goes into Jacob. She says, look, don't worry about it. I got a plan. You not only are going to get the birthright, you're going to get the blessing from your father. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to dress you up like your twin brother Esau. I've got one of his old smelly togas. We'll put it on. You'll smell just like your brother Esau when you go into your father Isaac. We'll take some animal skin, put it on your arm because he's a hairy guy. You don't have any hair at all. And by the way, don't worry about the venison stew. I taught Esau how to make venison stew. Look, I got enough in the freezer. We'll take it out, put it in the microwave. We'll make the venison stew. You can take it into your daddy and you can get the blessing from him. So just relax. We got it all covered. 27th chapter of the book of Genesis, chapter 27, verse 38. And Esau said unto his father, Hast thou but one blessing? You see, what happened is old Jacob went in and he gave his father the venison stew his mother had prepared. And his father Isaac, so blind he could hardly see who it was, he smelled the toga, he felt his arm, thought it was Esau. He gave old Jacob a blessing. 
Jacob was walking out. In walks Esau. Notice what he says. Verse 38. And Esau said unto his father, Hast thou but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up the voice and wept. And basically, if you read and exegete that, that's talking about throwing a temper tantrum. He started to cry and started to yell and said, Look, I want a blessing. Verse 39. And Isaac, his father, answered and said unto him, Behold, Thy dwelling shall be the fatness of the earth and of the dew of heaven from above. Now notice verse 40. And by the sword shall thou live, and thou shalt serve thy brother. And it shall come to pass when thou shalt have the dominion that thou shalt break his yoke from off of thy neck. And Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing wherewith his father had blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, The days of mourning for my father are at hand. Then will I slay my brother Jacob. Well, Rebekah heard about this. She said, I got a brother up in a place where you need to go. I want you to go up to Haran. It's there in Turkey. And I want you to go up there and I want you to stay there until your brother settles down. Or he's going to kill you. And so Jacob takes off to go to spend time with his uncle. As he comes into town, he sees his two cousins, Rachel and Leah. Rachel. Mm-mm. Well, she's a good-looking lady. And Leah? She was whipped with an ugly stick, I tell you. She got up and took ugly pills every single morning. Well, Jacob immediately fell in love with Rachel. He wanted to marry her. But his uncle was as conniving as Jacob was. So he said, you marry Leah first, and then I'll let you marry Rachel. Well, he was caught, so he married both of them. They have 11, listen to this, they have 11 of the 12 sons of Jacob outside of the promised land. Rachel is heavy with child. They make their way back into Bethlehem, Euphrata. You've heard of that. That's where Jesus was born. And she has the 12th son named Benjamin, and she dies in childbirth. That's the 35th chapter of the book of Genesis. Go to the 36th chapter. Remember over there that judgment pronounced against Mount Seir? Let me show you where that comes from. 36th chapter of the book of Genesis. Now these are the generations of Esau who is Edom. There's where his name was changed. Esau took his wives of the daughters of Canaan. It lists his wives. You can read that. And uh, I want you to know what was going on. Now Esau and Jacob are living in the land. And they both are so prosperous. They became such land owners and cattle owners. It was unbelievable. Notice what it says right here. Verse 6, And Esau took his wives and his sons and his daughters and all the persons of his house and his cattle and all of his beasts and all of his substance, which he had got in the land of Canaan, and went into the country from the face of his brother Jacob. Verse 7, For their riches were more than that they might dwell together, and the land wherein they were strangers could not bear them because of their cattle. They were both so prosperous it was unbelievable. The land of Canaan could not supply all their needs. What does the Lord do? Look at you across the page at chapter 37, verse 1. And Jacob dwelt in the land wherein his father was a stranger, the land of Canaan, in the promised land. 
Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the heritage moves down through the patriarchs. But wait a minute, go back to chapter 36. Notice where Esau went to live, verse 8. Thus dwelt Esau in Mount Seir. You see who that judgment in chapter 35 of the book of Ezekiel is focused on? The Edomites, the descendants of Esau. Because God said, I'm going to have indignation against you forever. You can rebuild. I'll call that rebuilding the border of wickedness. Malachi chapter 1. Oh, by the way, let me show you something in verse 12. Look at this. Sometimes you miss it because you stop there in verse 9 or 8. Verse 12. And Timnah was a concubine to Eliphaz, Esau's son. And she bare to Eliphaz, notice who Esau's grandson was, Amalek. And these were the sons of Ada, Esau's wife. Are you with me thus far? I'm giving you a little history lesson, trying to dress it up so I don't lose you and you get ready to go home too early. But here is Esau. He doesn't get the blessing. Jacob runs away so he won't be killed. He comes back in when Esau has settled down. They become, both of them, so prosperous they can't stay in the land. God allows Jacob to live in the promised land. He sends Esau to Mount Seir. Do you know where Mount Seir is or was? You see, there's a mountain range coming down the Rift Valley from north to south in Israel. At the top of it is Mount Hermon. That's the first mountain range. That's not one mountain. That's a mountain range. And then you come down, you have the Golan Heights. Golan, that word is used in the Bible, Golan. Bashan is the biblical name otherwise, but it's Golan. And then from there, you have the mountains of Gilead. You have the mountains of Moab. You have the mountains of Mount Seir. Mount Seir, or when Edom gets there, when Esau gets there, it's changed to Edom where Petra is located. Go over to Exodus chapter 17. Chapter 17 of Exodus is a record of how the grandson of Esau is going to grow up. He's an Edomite. His name was Amalek. He became the father of the Amalekites. You know what's going on in the 17th chapter? The 17th chapter, the Jewish people are getting ready to try to make their way into the promised land. Now, they could have done it in a couple of days, but instead, because of disobedience, it's going to take them a 40-year period of time. While they're wandering into the wilderness, they come to a place called Rephidim. Look here, verse 8. Then came Amalek, and he fought with Israel in Rephidim. Wow. Do you remember that in Sunday school class? That was the location where... Moses stood over looking down in the valley below and Moses would hold the rod of God above his head. And as long as he held the rod of God above his head, the Israelites would defeat the Amalekites. He tired and he stopped to drop the rod below his head. He was able to push it back up. Finally, Aaron and Hur, his buddy and his brother, helped him to hold his hands up. And as long as the rod of God was above his head, guess what? The Israelites won. But the Amalekites were not all wiped out. I want you to notice what the Lord tells Moses and Joshua. Verse 14, And the Lord said unto Moses, Write this for a memorial in a book and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua, for I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Utterly going to put away the remembrance of this man Amalek. And Moses built an altar. Verse 16, 
For he said, because the Lord has sworn that the Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. This is the Lord battling Amalek, the father of the Amalekites. Go to 1 Samuel chapter 15. Let me show you what's going to happen. Samuel is the prophet. He's a priest and he's a prophet. And he's the one that actually was the one God used to anoint Saul, the first king of Israel. And so now he's going to come back to King Saul and give him other directions from the Lord. Look what it says here. Chapter 15, verse 1 Samuel. Samuel also said unto Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint thee to be king over the people, over Israel. Now therefore hearken thou unto the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel. How did he remember it? Because it was written down. God told Joshua to get the writing from Moses and pass it along. So it was written down at Rephidim. And that's what old Samuel's bringing up. The Lord of hosts reminded me that which Amalek did to Israel in verse 2, how that he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. Verse 3, here's the command that now the prophet Samuel is going to give King Saul. Now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. He's saying kill them all. Kill the men and the women, the mothers and the fathers, the sucklings on their mother's breast. Kill all the animals. Kill them all. Kill every one of them. And Samuel leaves. A couple of days later, he comes back, goes into King's. King Saul, did you do what the Lord told me to tell you to do, the command the Lord gave you? He said, I did. You killed all the Amalekites? I killed every one of them. You killed all their animals and the sucklings on the... I killed all the animals. What's that noise? Sounds like the bleeding of a sheep to me. He said, I thought you killed all the animals. Oh, (laughs) I didn't kill all the sheep. Some of those sheep were without blemish, without spot. They were perfect. I thought we could use them in sacrifice. You know what Samuel's wise statement was? Better to be obedient than offer sacrifice. And then he said, did you kill Agag, the king of the Amalekites? He said, no, I didn't. So why didn't you kill Agag? He said, because his riches would enhance our mission. And we would take his money. He said, get Agag over there to Gilgal. You know where Gilgal is? It's between the Jordan River and the city of Jericho. It's where when the children of Israel came into the promised land, they bivouacked. That's where they had the first circumcision. That's where they had the first Passover in the promised land. And he goes over to Gilgal and he stands up in front of old Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And he says to Agag, give me that sword, Agag. And Samuel, the prophet, takes the sword from Agag. He says, you see this sword, buddy? This sword have made many mothers childless. Today, your mother's going to be childless. And old Samuel took that sword and chopped Agag up into little pieces. You think I'm making that up? Go to verse 33. And Samuel said, as thy sword hath made women childless, so shall thy mother be childless among women. And Samuel hewed Agag in pieces before the Lord 
in Gilgal. When God says do something, he means to do it the way he tells you to do it. Now that's in Gilgal. The Amalekites. Not all of them were killed. Some escaped. Go to the book of Esther. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. Go to the book of Esther. You know the story of Esther, don't you? King Ahasuerus. He was more powerful than the previous four Persian kings, more rich than all the rest of them. He controlled 128 promises all the way from India to Spain. I mean, he was a powerful, rich leader. He had a wife named Vashti. She was a beautiful lady. One day, King Ahasuerus said, I'm going to bring all my provincial leaders in. We're going to have a gathering, a conference. And Vashti, I want you to perform. You're so beautiful, you'll really excite these leaders. I want you to perform. Gentlemen, you know where ladies' lib started, women's lib? Right there. You know what Vashti said? No way, King Epu, am I going to perform for all of these provincial leaders. Well, King Ahasuerus had a number two. You know what his name was? Haman. And Haman comes into King Ahasuerus and said, you got a problem. If you don't get rid of Vashti, nobody's ever going to follow your directives again. She defied you. And so... King Ahasuerus looks at Haman, what should I do? Dethrone her. Get another wife. So he dethroned her. And then Haman said, I'll bring in some volunteers who would like to be your wife. And he started bringing them in, bringing them by King Ahasuerus. There was one young lady named Esther. When she stepped around the corner, King Ahasuerus said, wow. That's Hebrew for, boy, that's a good-looking lady. I'll tell you that for sure. And he said, I want that one. I want to marry her. She had a cousin. You know what his name was? Mordecai. Mordecai, he was a Jew, just like his cousin, Esther. Isn't that interesting? The Persian king is going to marry a Jew. Well, Mordecai was kind of a big will in the community. He would sit the gate at the city and People had to come by. The guests in the city would come by him, and, and they would have a relationship. One day, old Haman came through the gate to the city. Everybody bowed before Haman except Mordecai. And Haman said, hey, you didn't bow to me. He said, I don't bow to any man. I only bow to the Lord. Haman goes into King Ahasuerus and said, we got a problem. There's a Jew out there that didn't bow to me. Hezariah the king said, what do you think we ought to do? I think we ought to kill all the Jews. You write the law of the Medes and the Persians, I'll go forth and I'll kill every Jew on the earth. And so they start to get ready to do that. Had it not been for such a time as that, that Esther came into the kingdom. And I, if I perish, I perish, but I'm going in. She went in. And you know the rest of the story. Do you hear what happened to Haman and who he was? Look over here in chapter 3. You knew that story. I'm just refreshing your thinking on Esther. Look here in chapter 3, verse 1. After these things did King Ahasuerus promote Haman, the son of Abadatha, the Agagite. Do you understand what I just said to you? Haman, the son of Abadatha, the Agagite. Wow. Do you know who the father of the Agagites was? Agag. 
the king of the Amalekites. Oh, who was king of the Amalekites? Who was the leader of the Amalekites? Who was the father? That was Oamalek. Who was he? Grandson of Esau. You get it? Haman. Agag. Amalek. Esau. Oh, all of them descendants of Esau who said, let's kill the Jews. Do you know that Haman had a great, great, great grandson? Want to know what his name was? Herod the Great, an Edomite. Go over to the book of Obadiah. That ought to take you a few minutes. Obadiah. It's over there just before Jonah and after Amos. That should help. It's, if you have a good Bible, it's on page 941. If you can't find it, it's a place where your pages are still stuck together. All right? Eddie, just look it up in the index and get over there, would you please? Obadiah. The problem is it's the smallest book in the entire Bible, so that's the problem. You're not able to find it. I want you to know this is a major, major prophecy focused on the Edomites. And through this prophecy, we'll find out who the Edomites are. Do you remember Herod the Great and the Apostle Paul? He said, Esau have I hated Jacob have I loved, quoting Malachi chapter 1, quoting God the Father. That's what he said. Do you not think that this brilliant man, this intellect, one of the greatest in all of history, had not studied the prophet? Why in the world would Malachi say that? Don't you think he went back to the 35th chapter of the book of Ezekiel and studied that? It's a parallel passage. Do you think he didn't study Jeremiah chapter 49, which is another parallel passage of judgment on the Edomites? And he even found the book of Obadiah, and he studied that. He understood. He knew who Herod was. He knew Herod was a descendant of Esau. Herod was ultimately an Edomite. When they came out of Petra, they changed their name to Edomians. But he knew that. Do you not think that he never heard of how Herod killed all Jewish boys two years of age and under in the book of Matthew chapter 2, a prophecy fulfilled from Jeremiah? Do you don't think that he understood why Herod built a temple called Herod's temple when it wasn't his temple? John chapter 2, 46 years he spent refurbishing that temple. You know who built the temple. When they came out of the Babylonian captivity, Zerubbabel built the temple. But it was a simple temple. And along comes Herod, and he makes it the most beautiful building in the world. The rabbis would say, if you've never seen Herod's temple, you've never seen a beautiful building. But you know what? That helped them to understand that that temple belonged to the Edomites. It didn't belong to the Jews. Have you ever thought about that? Do you remember chapter 4 of the Gospel of John? Jesus is walking through Samaria. He sees the Samaritan woman at the well. They have a conversation, and then finally, you know what she says? She says, Jesus, you tell us all to worship at the temple in Jerusalem, Herod's temple. Our fathers tell us to worship out here in Samaria. You know why that was said? 
because a high priest in the temple purchased from the Edomites decided to fall in love with a Samaritan woman. It was not allowed. It wasn't halakhic law. It wasn't Jewish law that he could marry a mixed breed, a Samaritan woman. So her father came and said, look, if you'll give up the chief priesthood, the high priest responsibility, I'll build you a temple. I'll replicate Herod's temple here in Samaria. 150 years before it's fact, it happened. How do you think we know anything about Herod's temple? Remember I told you last night there wasn't a stone upon a stone? How do you think the archaeologists today know anything about Herod's temple? They go out to the one in Samaria. I've been there. I've seen the ruins of that temple. It's almost complete. It's unbelievable. And don't you think Paul understood that? And don't you understand that he realized there was a connection between Herod and the Edomites? Uh, When he read the book of Obadiah, he got it all in mind and he understood. That's why he was going to the mission field. Look here in verse 1 of Obadiah. The vision of Obadiah, thus saith the Lord God concerning Edom, we have heard a rumor from the Lord, and an ambassador is sent among the heathen. Arise ye, and let us rise up against her in battle. Behold, I have made thee small among the heathen, but thou art greatly despised. Talking about the Edomites. Here's the reason you're going to be wiped out as if you've never been. The pride of thy heart hath deceived thee. Thou that dwellest in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, that saith in his heart, who shall bring us down to the ground? Though thou exalt thyself as the eagle, and though thou set thy nest among the stars, thence will I bring thee down, saith the Lord. Do you understand what that's saying? Where did Esau go to live? Petra. Have you ever been to Petra? It's 25 square miles. It's the rose red city. The colors of the rainbow in the sandstone change as the sun moves across the sky. There's only one way to get into Petra. It's through the Sikh, S-I-Q. That's an Arabic word which means high, narrow gorge. At some places, it's about seven feet wide. It expands out to 30 feet wide. It's about three to 400 feet high, and it meanders for about a mile and a third as you get into the main body of Petra. As you come in, you come to the treasury building. The Nebateans, the famous stone carvers from Saudi Arabia, carved out. Maybe you saw that on Indiana Jones when they went in there. It's five stories high. It's the treasury building. That's where, oh, Indiana Jones went in and all the snakes were. There are no snakes there. That's all Hollywood. Forget it. But that's where the Edomites were. You want to know something? You know what passed by Petra? The King's Highway. You know where it came from? Out of northern Africa. Over there in Egypt, it came into Israel. It crossed the Jordan River, went over there into Jordan, went right by Petra. It was the King's Highway. It's the way the merchants out of Africa would bring their merchandise over to Arabia, Saudi Arabia. Well, that's the same way Moses led the children of Israel when they were wandering in the wilderness. They came from Kadesh Barnea. They crossed over. They went by Petra. They're trying to get into the promised land when it was only about 40 miles down the road if it just kept going. But they went over to Petra. They're walking down the King's Highway. The Edomites came out to the people, Moses, and he said, "Uh, look, you can't go this way. Turn around and go back and go around over towards Arabia. Moses said, look, if our cattle drink your water, eat your grass, we'll pay. No, you can't go. 
So they were turned down. You know how these Edomites were able to sustain life? Robbing the merchants. You see, if the high narrow gorge is only this wide and the entrance not much wider, when the merchants would come down the king's highway, they'd rob the merchants, they would run back into Petra. You could take a couple of guys and hold off an entire army. But if those guys got by those Edomites there at the entrance, well, then in the high narrow gorge, from about 600 feet above, they would take pots of boiling water and pour them down on them and kill them. But if that didn't work, you know what they did? They went into Petra itself and they went on the cliffs. Yeah, those cliffs are 2,000 feet high. Some of them man-made, some of them God-made. And there, like eagles in their nest, they were impregnable. And they said, who's going to bring us down? And God said, I will. I'll bring you down. You know how he did that? The Nebataeans and the Edomites were having a banquet. She, the Nebataeans were the only friends to the Edomites. So they're having a banquet because they did all the carving in there. And they were just rejoicing, celebrating. Look at verse 7. And all the men of thy confederacy have brought thee even to the border. The men that were at peace with thee have deceived thee and prevailed against thee. They that eat thy bread hath laid a wound under thee. There is none understanding in them. And you know what they did? They started killing the Edomites. So what did the Edomites do? They ran out to seek. They made a western turn. They went across the Jordan Valley. They go into southern Judah and they become the Idumeans. That's what Idumean means, southern Judah. And Herod was one of those descendants of Esau, an Edomite, an Idumean. Obadiah says, you're going to be wiped out as if you have never been. Look here in verse 10. For thy violence against thy brother Jacob, shame shall come and cover thee, and thou shalt be cut off forever. Notice verse 11, this is key. In the day that thou stoodest on the other side, in the day that the strangers carried away captive his forces and foreigners entered into his gates and cast lots upon Jerusalem, even thou wast as one of them. You know what that's talking about? The destruction by the Babylonians of the city of Jerusalem. The third time Nebuchadnezzar came into Jerusalem. Came in the first time, took Daniel and his buddy out. Second time, Ezekiel and about 10,000 Jews. Third time, they wipe out the city of Jerusalem. Second Chronicles chapter 36. Do you know what happened that day? All the enemies of the Jewish people were there. Nebuchadnezzar said, who wants to burn down the temple? Everybody raised their hand. He said, okay, we'll cast lots. They cast lots. Guess who the lot fell on? Esau. The Edomites, they burn the temple down. And God says, you don't do that. You don't do that. Everything to verse 14 is prophecy that's already been fulfilled. Now it's history. Look at verse 15. For the day of the Lord is near upon the heathen. You know what the day of the Lord, the definition of the day of the Lord is? Any time in history when God intercedes in the affairs of man, personally on the earth. That's the day of the Lord. Do you remember Paul's discussion on the day of the Lord, 1 Thessalonians? It happens after the rapture of the church. That's why the rapture hadn't happened. That's what he was explaining to the people in Thessaloniki. Let's say this is the rapture. Let's say that pulpit is the second coming. Let's say in between is that tribulation period which Jesus Christ talks about. 
Okay, the rapture is the next event on God's calendar of activities. The day of the Lord starts after the rapture of the church. Now, Obadiah, and by the way, it leads up to the second coming. Now, that's the specific usage, the general usage. It's a thousand and seven years long, but I'm looking at the specific usage. Look what he says again, verse 15. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen, all the Gentiles. As thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. Thy reward shall return unto thy head. Verse 16, for as ye have drunk upon my holy mountain. You know what the holy mountain is? Temple Mount, the city of Jerusalem. Used 18 times in scripture. That's the holy mountain. He says, you drunk upon my holy mountain. Does that mean they took a fifth of Jack Daniels, went up onto the Temple Mount and guzzled it down? No, it's the same thing as Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 2. You become intoxicated with Jerusalem. Now notice here. For as ye have drunk upon my holy mountain, so shall the heathen drink continually. Yea, they shall drink and they shall swallow down and they shall be as though they had not been. Listen. Who controls the Temple Mount today? Who is drunk with power controlling the Temple Mount? The Palestinian people. The Palestinians. They're the ones drunk with power. The Waqf, W-A-Q-F, an Islamic trust given to them in 67 at the end of the Six-Day War to appease the Muslim world, gave the custodial responsibilities to the Palestinians. They control who goes onto the Temple Mount, what time you come off, what you can do up there. They control everything. They're drunk with power on the Temple Mount, guzzling down intoxicating drink. Verse 17, but upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance. Mount Zion is the city of Jerusalem. And there shall be holiness and the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. When Jesus Christ comes back, God's made a promise to the Jewish people. They get everything he promised them. Verse 18, and the house of Jacob shall be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame and the house of Esau for stubble. And they shall kindle in them and devour them and there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau for the Lord hath spoken it. Do you understand what I'm telling you folks? I'm telling you the conflict that's going on in the Middle East between the Jews and the Palestinians was foretold 2,800 years ago by the prophet Obadiah. The descendants of the Esau, the Edomites, control the Temple Mount. And after the seven-year tribulation period, when Jesus steps back on earth, he gives all the possessions that he's promised to the Jewish people, the kingdom, the temple, the sacrificial system, everything. And he lets the descendants of Jacob become the flame and the Palestinians the stubble. And they're wiped out as if they've never been. Only two people are wiped out as if they've never been. The Babylonians, Jeremiah 50, 51, and the Edomites, Obadiah, 
Why? Both of them messed with the temple of God. You don't mess with the temple of God and get by. I gave you this prophetic message to help you realize where we are. 4,000 years ago, the conflict started. It was kind of dormant for a number of years until 1964 when a man named Yasser Arafat came to power. Do you know who Yasser Arafat was? He was the nephew of the Hajj Aman al-Husseini. Do you know who the Hajj Aman al-Husseini was? He was the Mufti of Jerusalem. He was the man Adolf Hitler brought to Berlin and said, go on the most powerful radio station in the world. A million watts of power in Monaco on the Mediterranean coast. Call for the Jews to be killed by the Muslims. He did it. Oh, do you know who Hajjaman al-Husseini was? He was a nephew of Husseini al-Husseini. When General Allenby defeated the Ottoman Empire, he gave the power of the city of Jerusalem to Husseini al-Husseini. Do you know Husseini al-Husseini? You know who he was a relative of? Herod the Great. Are you listening? Herod the Great. Haman, Agag, Amalek, Esau, all of them wanted to kill the Jews. You don't think Paul understood when he wrote Romans chapter 9 and quoted Malachi? And that was a part of his outreach ministry. He started the church in Rome. He started the church in Ephesus that established eight churches in Asia Minor. That's missions because Paul understood Bible prophecy. And now we're here at the time that the ancient prophets discussed. Never in history has it been so bad between the Palestinians and the Israelis the descendants of Esau and Jacob. We're here. We better get off our blessed assurance and get in the battle. It's about to culminate. End time prophecy fulfilled. Father, thank you for the many prophetic passages in God's word many historic passages in God's word that give us the information to help us understand God's plan. I'm reminded of what the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 9. Oh, not the part about loving Jacob and hating Esau. I'm reminded of what Paul said in the first three verses of chapter 9. And with your heads bowed and eyes closed, let me just tell you what he said. He said, I tell you the truth. I lie not. The Holy Spirit be in my conscience. And then he said, I would be willing to be accursed. In other words, Paul said, I'll go to hell. In verse 3, if I can lead my kinsmen, my brethren, to Jesus Christ. That's the fire.
he had winning people to Christ and number one, his own people. And the record of Acts, he did that until his death. What are we doing to win our people, our kinsmen, our neighbors, our loved ones, the Bahamians, those in the Caribbean, those in this region of the world, and outreach to the world. What are we doing? Paul knew the prophecy. That's what gave him the urgency. Father, let us understand these truths and realize our responsibility now that we understand the prophecy and where we are in your time. Use all of this for your honor and for your glory. My precious name.